0: Buddhist Geeks, Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 226, The Buddhist Teacher's Council. We're joined this week by Vipassana teacher Martin Alward to hear his perspective on the Buddhist Teacher's Council, a recent gathering of Western teachers held at the Garrison Institute. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn. I'm joined today over Skype with Martin Alward. Martin is joining us today to speak a little bit about his experience participating in the recent Buddhist Teachers Council that happened at the Garrison Institute. And we've had him on the show before. He's one of my favorite teachers in Europe, uh, and I love to hear his perspectives on different topics. So thank you, Martin, again for joining the Buddhist Geeks. And we wanted to focus on this uh, this Buddhist Teachers Council and your experience there because you were part of a group of teachers that were invited to kind of represent the next generation group of teachers. And then there was some other teachers that were part of this group of pioneering teachers. And it's really interesting, the topics that you guys explored together. And we thought it'd be fun to kind of share some of what you learned there, what you guys talked about, to kind of share that with the broader Buddhist community. So just to start off with, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about just the overall aim of the council and and kind of what was going on there.
1: Well, I, I guess the aims were probably twofold. Uh, one of which was to kind of uh, collectively look at the Dharma in the world in its various manifestations and just explore together what's happening, uh, the ways we contribute to what's happening and others contribute to it, and just kind of uh, make the connections with that really and, and uh, explore what everyone's doing. You know, people are doing all kinds of wonderful work and we don't all know about that what each other are doing and the second aim was more a personal one just the getting together and exploring our own practice and our own understanding and our own love of the dharma really with each other both those people that we know and have maybe done practice with over years and shared a lot of experience together and those who we don't know so well and maybe know each other through books or uh, other avenues, or, or don't know at all, and also then the cross-traditional sharing as well. So there was um, there were people from the Theravada Vipassana world, which I'm in, mean. and then there was also a bunch of people from Tibetan Buddhism and the Vajrayana practitioners, teachers, Zen teachers. Those being the main three groups, but also then there were Pure Land teachers and uh, kind of broadly inclusive, trying to be as representational as possible.
0: And Before we get into the kind of meat and potatoes of the conversation and and kind of hearing what were some of the big topics and themes that came up, it seems like we can't really go into that before we acknowledge that there was a bit of controversy on the interwebs around this council. (sighs) Part of it seemed to stem from the fact that there wasn't a whole lot of information sort of publicly available beforehand so a lot of people didn't know what was going on but basically there was some reactivity happening in the blogosphere around the council and people getting kind of upset and frustrated with certain things and i wondered you know because you were actually there and you you also are kind of aware of the reverbs of this reactivity if you could share a little bit about from your perspective what that was about what parts of it were kind of reasonable and what parts maybe were just a lack of information
1: yeah. Well, I haven't, I haven't followed the controversy too much on the Internet, I have to say, but it seemed like there were two things going on, one of which was some people feeling like they should have got invited and didn't, and how come? Which is perfectly reasonable, and I, it, it was definitely in our minds, those of us who were there, that there were plenty of other people who it would be great if they were there, who would ju- have just as much to contribute as the ones that were there, and that we would very much like them to be there and that uh, sometimes people just weren't able to come. Sometimes uh, they were invited, but in one, in one prominent case, uh, the email went into their spam folder and they never knew about it. And then that was somebody who actually made quite a big deal about not being invited, even though they had been. Or in other cases, we also acknowledge there's, you know, there's lots of people all over the world doing great Dharma service, and we just don't necessarily know who they are. One part of that going on. And then the other, which is interesting, which I think we didn't, the organisers didn't really recognise. It was the sense that oh, this is happening, something happening behind closed doors, that this kind of powerful group of people getting together to ruminate on Buddhism and sort of lay out the path of Buddhism, and it actually wasn't at all like that. It was a lot of it was personal in nature, and so it wasn't seemed there wasn't really the wish to make it very public in a way. But I think what was interesting is that 10 years ago, the last time one of these happened, that could easily be organized. Teachers contacted each other and arranged to meet, and that was that. But that was a, almost a pre-internet age <laughs> to 10 years ago. And so uh, things are just much more transparent now. And so 10 years ago, no one would have really known that that was happening until there was maybe an article about it in, uh, in one or other Dharma magazine which was born out of the meeting. And so the sense people had of this happening behind closed doors. It was actually very interesting to see the way, you know, the way the mind creates views. And when you've only got the very partial information, you tend to fill in the rest of the information in your own mind. And then people came up with all kinds of ideas, many of which would seem to be negative. And then, of course, the reactivity builds on the negativity. And then you get all the dramas and uh, details that people had posted about what they thought might be going on, most of which wasn't. <laughs> So
0: the, the rumors about the uh, huge Buddhist orgies, that wasn't true?
1: Uh, unfortunately, we missed that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, this is a really interesting point. And what I find so interesting in what you're saying, too, is this recognition of, of how, you know, the last major meeting, which happened in 2001 at Spirit Rock was really in a a certain way pre-internet. I mean, the internet was going on, but there wasn't the same level of interconnectivity and, and ripples couldn't flow through the internet so rapidly. And so this point about if there's just not information, you know, people can just kind of take that and run and it can really blow up very quickly. That's such an interesting point. And in some ways it does also speak to some of the differences between generations in some ways, uh, younger generations are kind of more familiar with this. You know, we kind of, uh, in some ways, have kind of grown up in a situation where we've seen these technologies blossom and we know if we post a certain Facebook update that it could ripple out very quickly and could upset a lot of people. So there's more of a kind of awareness of that. Whereas the people, you know, who we've studied with and learned from, they were in Asia hanging out in the 70s, not so much on Facebook and Twitter. So it's completely different generational thing. Uh, And I wondered if you could say a little bit about this part of the gathering where the next generation teachers, which was a group of teachers 45 and under, and then the pioneering teachers were getting together and exploring some different topics and themes. And I wonder if you could share some of the highlights of that exploration, because that feels really relevant, especially to the exploration of Buddhist geeks, which is focused on kind of the emerging Edge of Buddhism, kind of what's coming, what's emerging right now. Um, it'd be cool to hear for you what some of the highlights were.
1: Yeah, well, as as one of the next generation group, we met just between ourselves. There was about forty of us initially, so I'll I'll just lay out the way the conference happened. There were the first three days, there were twenty two pioneers, I think, and forty something uh, next gen, so called, and we met uh, first couple of days in our own separate groups and then came together for uh, uh, most of the last day of those three days. And then it was opened up to the broader conference where there was 200 and something uh, teachers all together meeting for the next three days. So those earlier three days obviously were a more intimate uh, gathering. And it was very rich to meet with a bunch of Dharma peers that were of a similar age, that was one great thing somehow, just to sit around in a circle and look at another bu- uh, this whole bunch of people in the 30s and 40s and just kind of recognizing each other in that way. I think many of us had had the experience that our Dharma peers, people we've practiced with and then maybe teach with, are often of another generation, often 20 or more years older than us. So there was a kind of just a sort of recognition. Oh, these are, these are my Dharma buddies. This is my Sangha in some way. And then uh I th- think also a generational difference was the way we explored and met and hung out was, you know, of course, redolent of the generation we are. And uh there was a kind of a contrast there sometimes It seemed to me that the younger generation, we were more at ease being personal with each other, more at ease talking about our practice, more at ease recognizing and exploring and sharing uh, difficulties and challenges. And the thought I had, you know, was that, I mean, certainly some of my teachers, and I think this is probably uh, common in the first generation, you know, people did their practice in Asia. And then they came back, and many of them started to teach very young and pretty much straight back. And ever since, their whole adult life has been in the role of Dharma teacher. And so they didn't have so much sense of Dharma peers around them. They had lots of students. And so they were more exclusively in the role of being the teacher, which doesn't necessarily foster much really kind of alive, personal, uh, disclosing, sharing kind of contact because there's, there's a certain uh, real helpfulness in maintaining the role of teacher to student. Mm. So for a younger generation, we've we've kind of had much more of that. And uh, sometimes when we did meet up, it seemed to me that uh, maybe some more than others, but of the pioneers, it was harder for them to connect socially without somehow being a Dharma teacher. <laughs>
0: Interesting. Yeah. So that was one thing that kind of stood out. And then... Were there other things that stood out? I mean, there's this kind of general recognition, right, that recently a lot of really important pioneering Western teachers have passed away recently. Charlotte Mm. Joko Beck, um, Robert Aiken, you know, so many teachers that have been so influential in bringing Buddhism to the West. Was that brought up, that topic of kind of uh, passing the torch, so to speak, of Buddha Dharma over the next decade or so?
1: Yeah, very much, particularly when we met on the last day together kind of formally it was uh, very moving actually we made a little it was a little bit ceremonial which in itself is interesting when you've got people from all these different traditions who do things differently but uh we kind of you know, slightly ritualized the meeting between generations and each group had prepared three statements and three requests to make of the other group And it was very beautiful both to hear from the pioneers and for us to make these kind of heartfelt statements, mostly of gratitude and appreciation, and then speaking about what was important from us and what we wanted from the other group. One of the generational differences that came out there was, I think, the breadth of skillful means that have developed over the 40 years or so since Dharma started to flourish in the West particularly in our scene, in the the Vipassana world, a lot of the initial emphasis was on these kind of setting up of retreat centers and the opportunities for meditation practice. And now that, that so many places are so well set up, the breadth of those skillful means in terms of working in the community and with social justice and meeting people in the midst of their lives, not just in the rarefied environment of retreat, that had grown up a lot. And the pioneers were very appreciative of that. And also we danced. (laughs) A couple of evenings we put on music and we danced a lot. It was a very beautiful way just to be in contact, you know. And somehow it seemed to be more of a youthful thing to dance. And yet the old guard were very keen as well.
0: And it was great to hang out in that way. It's too bad there's not any uh, video footage of that.
1: Well, th- well there is, but it's uh, carefully guarded. It's
0: private, okay. <laughs>
1: it's <laughs> carefully
0: guarded, right.
1: There's nice. some grainy iPhone footage, covertly filmed. Of, um, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's
0: fantastic. You know, it's interesting. I spoke with someone, a participant who was there, that was, I don't think, participating in the first part, but aware of what was happening. And And she brought up one interesting facet, which was that she noticed that in some ways the dynamics between the uh, younger generation of teachers and the pioneers that they also in some ways mimicked the dynamics between parents and kids in some ways mm-hmm. she was kind of aware of there being dynamics between the two that were both healthy and then also some that were maybe a little weird like with you know kids being really disappointed in their parents or things like that. I wanted to just throw that out there because it's kind of an interesting observation. And I wondered from your experience, did you notice any interesting roles or dynamics playing out that shaped the conversation like that?
1: That's a really interesting way of seeing it. I hadn't quite, I hadn't seen it myself in those terms, but it really makes sense. And I think, you know, mostly there was actually a lot of affection and respect and gratitude and one of, one of the things I noticed in hearing the, the statements and requests from the pioneers, I realized that I was kind of somehow unconsciously expecting to hear, uh, look, this is a two and a half thousand year old tradition, you know, don't mess it up. Don't go too far in, in uh, your youthful exuberance and uh, different models that you may have for teaching the Dharma than the ones we had. In that way, I guess I was expecting a kind of parental lecture. And actually, that, that wasn't what was forthcoming at all from them. There was, there was a lot of expression of, of a kind of appreciation of and trust in the different forms that they saw us using. And actually, a kind of, I think, a surprising to the older generation, a surprising level of confidence in the Dharma that we're teaching, in the, the sincerity of people's practice and the depth of their understanding and the breadth of those skillful means in bringing Dharma into the world. And I don't think that was just a kind of mutual backslapping enjoyment of each other. It was actually a kind of deep recognition of the beauty of the Dharma and its flowering in people's hearts. The younger ones kind of celebrating and feeling grateful for having received that flowering from the elders. And in turn, the elders feeling the kind of delight and appreciation for the, of seeing that flowering in their students and feeling the trust in that continuing to happen and being passed down to another generation and another generation.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, yeah. And I understand another really powerful part of the gathering, and I've heard this from multiple people actually, was an exercise that one of the younger teachers led. Uh, I believe it was Vinnie Ferrero? Yeah. 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 And I wondered, to whatever degree you could, share just the general details of that because it sounded like Within it, there was a lot of information contained and some things we could probably talk a little bit more about.
1: Yeah, so Vinnie uh, very beautifully facilitated this exercise, and it's something he's done hundreds of times in all kinds of different situations with gangs and school kids and situations where there's a lot of tension often. So even though there were different traditions there, it wasn't quite the sort of tension you might get in rival gangs, but uh, the exercise is sometimes called crossing the line, and I was familiar with it mostly from the movie The Freedom Writers. It's uh, an invitation, everyone stands on one side of the line, and the invitation to cross the line if, there's a whole bunch of different categories. So often that's used to highlight basically inclusion and exclusion, sameness and difference. And it was very, very moving in this exercise, some of the, the differences we looked at were around race and gender and social background. Some of them were just around human suffering, the invitation to cross the line if people had ever attempted or seriously considered suicide, for example. And so when you're in that kind of context, you know, it was really about pain, about suffering, seeing each other crossing the line and crossing back as an expression of the different kinds of suffering, social, racial, historical, personal, religious as well in terms of traditions. And what was so moving about it was that it cut straight through the debate. I've sat in different uh, Dharma conferences and teacher meetings where there's been talking about issues of gender equality and the suffering that's in that, talking about different kinds of exclusion, etc. And often those things stir up the suffering that's in there without the capacity for any kind of resolution. The exercise and participating in that together, it was like it cut underneath the trying to deal with the issues and just being able to hold the pain of them. And, you know, many times when many of us were in tears, and just to be able to meet it and look in each other's eyes across the line and hold the suffering of that, somehow went much deeper to an acknowledgement and a commitment to working with the pain of those different things than a lot of kind of talking about it could have done. And so we did that in the uh, younger generation group, in the next gen group. And it was so powerful that we decided that we wanted to offer it to the whole 200 and something teachers when they arrived, which was the case. I think probably for many people it's interesting you say you talked to a lot of people about that that what happened there would probably be the the most enduring sense of what was beautiful about the meeting more than the sort of discussion topics part of things. It's
0: interesting. I was just imagining, you know, what it might've been like kind of being there. And I just got a sense that it would be easier in that to kind of get in touch with the universal nature of some of those sufferings too. And especially with all of these incredibly passionate and experienced practitioners who've had so much experience and practice in holding suffering, it sounds really powerful.
1: Yeah, yeah, immensely so. And there was a few occasions where, you know, I mean, people that I knew well, that I, you know, I've, I've known for years and practiced with and felt like I knew well, and then, oh, I see them cross the line in response to, to an invitation from Vineyard on something I didn't know about them at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then others, some kind of well-known figures that might cross the line in response to something that was, uh, in, in a few cases, very important and and uh, touching for a lot of people there. And some of the stuff was around issues that have been historically kind of painful and uh, that have involved uh, various dilemmas and ethical issues and scandals and you know, some from the history of uh, Western Buddhism. And there was a way of addressing those and recognising each other in them. You know, it's a little bit difficult to talk about it specifically because it's obviously something that happened with a lot of, you know, trust and of course confidentiality but um, there was actually some some healing of some old pains in there between people as well and as I say, it would be hard to think of another context in which that could have happened so beautifully and so movingly and with everybody really really on board with it Nice,
0: thank you and there is a piece in there that we wanted to get into a little bit more and it's around some of the kind of crucial issues of our time. Um, just like the pioneering generation of teachers, you know, they were working with crucial issues and crucial timely situations, you know. Um, they were dealing with issues around bringing an ancient Asian tradition into the Western context. They were dealing with issues of kind of looking at how Western psychology fits in with Buddhist psychology. They are dealing with all sorts of issues around the politics of the time, and dealing with issues around gender gender equality in particular that all, all were happening during the same time that Buddhism was coming to the west and now we are looking at an entirely new set of issues although the ones that have come before are not are still there they're still yeah. present could you say a little bit about some of the kind of key issues or topics that that the next generation really uh, needs to be looking at and we're coming up as part of this uh, circle exercise even?
1: Yeah. Well, firstly, there was there was the acknowledgement of how much work the early generation of, of sort of returnees from Asia did in... Uh, not just bringing Dharma practice to the West, but, but the beginnings of an actual Dharma culture in the West and what they were up against in terms of, you know, the very, very patriarchal nature of Asian Buddhism, for example, and how painful that had been for some of the women teachers to feel so unseen and so unvalued and discriminated against and invisible in different ways. And, of course, partly Western culture isn't as patriarchal as Asian culture, and there's been a lot of attention and care and no doubt more could be done to, to not maintain or not support that kind of uh, gender inequality. But then for, for the younger generation, there's a whole lot, bunch of other stuff in there that's bit, that have become more the issues of our time. And maybe, you know, feminism was kind of coming to the fore in many ways at the same time that Dharma was coming to the West. And as in, in, for our generation, there are other issues that are sort of to the fore around wider stuff to do with inclusion, around race as well as gender, and around sexuality, uh, sexual orientation, Mm -hmm. and issues of social justice. And so there was quite some exploration of that. those things that came out. One one of the invitations to cross the line was to cross the line if you were from some kind of Latino or Latina background. And in the first time that happened, no one crossed the line. And then just the invitation to see a, a, a big section of the population who wasn't there at all. And the second time, with the larger meeting, one person crossed the line. And then just to just, just see this, like 200 and something on one side of the line and one person on the other. So those things coming alive in that way. And also a very poignant comment that somebody made was... That you know, we might look at we we can look at the older generation and see the things they did give attention to and and didn't or didn't have space for or weren't so alive for them. And somebody said, what about the next generation? What might they look at us and say? Well, why didn't you guys pay attention to this? And that was actually specifically in terms of uh, ecological uh, stuff around you know, the scarcity of resources, the rampant consumerism and the, the, the climate crisis and the, the just, just that open question that somebody said, you know, might it be that a following generation might look at us and say, well, what was the matter with you guys? Why didn't you address, you know, whether it was that or other issues? And I think that was just a very good wake-up call for us to see. And, of course, it's different in different cases, and people some are focusing on a very sort of deep meditation-based a retreat type of practice and others are working in a much broader engaged uh, daily life context but the, the question that came alive was you know what's the expression of our dharma transmission what do we include what do we not include and what might we feel personally as our responsibility to include to speak about to address with our students but to keep alive or to make alive in our own practice and in our teaching and the recognition of the kind of responsibility we have to the extent that students look at us as some form of authority. And, of course, it's not that we should need to be or should even try to be an authority in all areas, Good, God forbid. But given the, the sense of responsibility we feel to make our response as an alive and as authentic, as an inclusive one, that that makes a difference to the suffering in our world, in the conditions that are there in, in, in the current generation, the living generation.
0: Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, too, because this topic brings up, at least for me when I hear you describing that, it brings up this question of what is Dharma and then what's the expression of Dharma? And that sounds mm-hmm. like just to even ask that question or those questions just goes right to the heart of the whole enterprise even so it sounds like yeah a really profound one it sounds like it was alive and well in the conversation
1: yeah yeah and of course people might uh, will, will have different responses to that there was right. one very interesting kind of uh question put to us by one of the senior teachers which is you know what's the bottom line in your practice and your teaching what's the bottom line that's the the kind of essence that makes what you do dharma practice and that you want to communicate to your students. And, you know, without having to come up with any kind, it wasn't like we were looking for consensus around that. But it's something valuable in the, both the aliveness of the question for anybody who practices Dharma, I would say, the aliveness of that question. And then to have the, the kind of rich, fertile ground of being able to explore that. With, with a bunch of other people who've spent some decades looking deeply into their own hearts and minds and into the Dharma of life. And so, you know, that aspect of just the personal connections and explorations was uh, was wonderful. That was, you know, that was more than anything else why I, you know, came across to the states from Europe to go to the conference. And as is often the way, as well as you know, the, the the richness of what was brought up in the various kind of Plenary sessions and meeting times and small group discussions. A lot of that real richness happens at the meal tables and going for walks together after supper and, you know, just hanging out and chewing the fat of the Dharma, as it were.
0: Mm, nice. And I also feel like this is an important question. We have to kind of, of course, bring it back to looking also at what doesn't work or what seems like an obstacle. Was there a sense in the experience of being there, that certain things just weren't jiving. There was any sort of perspectives which simply were clashing or which seemed unintegratable, or I'm trying to find the right word, but you know what I mean, of a sense of yeah. like these pieces just weren't working and there's a way in which we need to kind of acknowledge that. Oh, was there yeah. any sense of that happening?
1: You're fishing for clues for the Buddhist Leagues Conference. I'm trying to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would say there was a the the large, uh, particularly the second part of the meeting, which was less intimate because we were so many more people among two hundred and thirty people, trying to to you know and often time felt a little squeezed. So t- trying to address some ambitious area of dharma it, in an hour and a half slot with two hundred and thirty people, uh, it's it's probably set up to be a little frustrating and disappointing and and unsatisfactory, if you like. There was only the chance for a very few people to to have their voice in the room around any one subject. And I would also say that a few people took too much time and space up, actually. You know, if you think, uh, somebody said, you know, if you think uh, this is where you're at a party and there's only a certain number of cookies, you know, you've got to think about how many there are for everybody. And so, it seemed to be sometimes people might wish to uh, make a point about some piece we were looking at, and it sort of turned into a little bit of a mini Dharma talk. And it's it worked, for me at least, it worked much better when people were sort of personal and uh, really speaking in a way that was born of their own alive experience, rather than getting a little maybe abstract or... Uh, dare I say preachy which happened in a few cases
0: well I'm sure the Buddhist tradition has a good history of preaching too so (laughs) and I'm wondering maybe as a kind of closing question if there were any there are any things or any ways in which this experience for you personally has altered the course of your own teaching or will change kind of how you're engaging with things? If you cease focusing or emphasizing on certain things more, taking on projects, just how did it, I guess the question is, how does it change you?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And there is, there is one element that's, that's really, uh, that has changed for me, which is something very beautiful about really feeling the, this two and a half thousand year old tradition both its livingness now and its, its deep roots over time. And, you know, s- quite often in the context in which I teach, I don't bring many elements of the historical tradition in. I might refer to the Buddha and a particular teaching of the Buddha or a line of the Buddha or something. But, for instance, elements of chanting I don't hardly use and other things that are ceremonial or ritual in some way, even though I have myself this kind of love of the tradition and some of its ritualized aspects and, and, its, uh, and its Asian roots, I'm sometimes a little afraid to alienate people or to kind of frighten them off or sensitive to the fact that they might not have that same love of the depth and the long time of the tradition. But what I realized was, If I never introduce those elements, then I'm not giving them an opportunity to develop that kind of love for them. And so in the three retreats I've taught since I got back from the conference, I've uh, been chanting the homage and the refugees with people every evening. And I've closed each retreat with a thread ceremony, which is uh, common in Thailand, passing a white thread around. And they're kind of using the symbolic sense of interconnection with that and comes. The thread's tied to the Buddha image and then uh, goes all around the circle and back again. And giving people this white thread to tie around their wrists and take away as a memory of the interconnection and uh, the, the sincerity of their own practice and the support of others. And partly just the feeling that when I was there and the, the wish to kind of share that with others and overcoming what was a sort of doubt and not wishing to alienate and explaining that to students. I've really noticed the fruits of that. That people have responded very much to that, and uh, it was just a very interesting connection for me to make. It's like, well, if 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 I don't introduce any of those historical elements, I, then I realise I'm kind of responsible okay. for for them getting cut off in my generation, you know, to the in the small way that I'm uh, participating in Dharma teaching. And so I feel like I've kind of reconnected with the, the maintaining of the thread of the this sense of an unbroken tradition of women and men looking deeply into life in, in the Buddha's dispensation, if you like. And that, the, yeah, just a, a refreshing in my own heart that of this not just being Dharma, but it being Buddha Dharma. And, that, and of this pointing backwards through time, through the countless thousands of other people that have, have done these practices and got the fruits of these practices and all the goodness of heart and the, and the meeting of suffering and its resolution that's available in that.
0: Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network